All right, guys, 12.30 on the dot. Let's get started. We are glad you're here. If this is your first time, yeah, it's good to see. If this is your first time, um, we do this every week, and you come in, you get your food, you sit down, you meet new people, you hang out and talk. Uh, we always ask people just to leave a donation. This goes straight to the ladies in the back, and it's our way of thanking them for the food that they prepare for us. I don't get any of it at all. No, <clears throat> I reach in and they slap my hand away. Um, but this is because of the hospitality of Ruth Chris and the owner, Jeff Conway, who wants this to be a service to this area, a weekly Bible study where you come, <clears throat> you read through Scripture, and you just learn God's Word. And we journey through it together. <clears throat> it's very short. We're in and out. Um, get you back off to work or to your golf course or whatever you do after this. <clears throat> in... Um, less than an hour. So we're in the book of Deuteronomy. <clears throat> Real quick, I'm going to make just a couple of announcements. Bear with me. My throat is a little bit sore. When the weather swings drastically, my throat decides that it's going to have a party and make a lot of uh, confetti, aka mucus. So <clears throat> it makes give me a sore throat for a few days. But just to let you know uh, some upcoming things, May 28th, through June 5th, we're taking a group to the Holy Lands. We're going to Israel, we're going to Palestine, and we're going to Jordan. The entire trip, it's eight days in the Holy Land. Uh, three of those days are at a conference called Christ at the Checkpoint, where Christian peacemakers from around the world come to Bethlehem and discuss how to best follow the one who was from Bethlehem in the context of global conflict and peacemaking and all that stuff. Then after that, we're going to spend about four days going to all the places that we can in the land with a guide, English-speaking guide, our own bus. We're going to see everything. Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, Jerusalem, uh, the Transjordan, everything that we can see. Whole trip, including airfare, all your meals except for lunches, $3,500 a person. That's insane. So if you want this, here are the details right here. There's also on the website, discipledojo.org. Just click on there, and there is a page that has all of the details about everything uh, online. So you can check that out. And if you happen to go, or if you haven't yet gone online, go to discipledojo.org sometime. We have a video library that's got all of the study courses that, that, that this ministry teaches available to watch free online. Download the workbook, watch the courses, do them with a small group, do them by yourself. They're 100% free because of the people that support this ministry. And now that we're a nonprofit, People that support turned up their donations a little bit, and uh, so now all of this is available to you guys. So check it out, and there's also a link right there to our Roots Chris study, so you can send this to people and tell them, hey, come check this out. There's a map on it, and they can actually listen to the previous programs that we've done here, the previous years. We've, we've been in the Torah. We're in the final book of the Torah, Deuteronomy. We started in Genesis about five years ago, so we're right on track, and <clears throat> we spent... Um, We've walked through Israel's history in the, or before, the patriarchs, well, I mean everything, creation, Genesis, the patriarchs, um, <clears throat> then the 400-year gap where they're in Egypt, then we started Exodus where they've come out of Egypt, and we've been with Israel in the wilderness for about two years now, which is, give or take, about the time that they were camped at Mount Sinai and would have entered the Promised Land and the Exodus, all that stuff, but there was a 38-year gap because of their disobedience, and we're going to read some about that today. So we're in Deuteronomy, we're in chapter 1, and we talked last week about how Deuteronomy is a covenant document. So in the ancient world, 
if you made agreements between kings or a king made an agreement with a town or, or a city-state or anything, there would be a covenant document, a covenant treaty. And a particular type of covenant treaty happened around the mid-2nd millennium B.C., 1500s to 1200s B.C., somewhere in there, called the Hittite Suzerainty Vassal Treaty. And lo and behold, the whole book of Deuteronomy actually is structured in pretty much that same way, which is a huge indicator of Deuteronomy's antiquity. So scholars that say Deuteronomy happened or was written way after the exile in Babylon and it was compiled by different redactors, um, they, they have to ignore a lot of data to come up with that conclusion rather than just taking the book as what it says it is. And lo and behold, it actually fits the circumstances of that time period. But more than that, the fact that it's in a Hittite uh, suzerainty vassal treaty lets us know what the purpose of Deuteronomy is because the purpose of a vassal suzerain treaty was to pledge the vassal and the suzerain that they would support one another in their role. The suzerain being the superior, the vassal being the inferior. And because of what the suzerain had done on behalf of the vassal, then the vassal would pledge their obedience and their allegiance to that suzerain and that suzerain alone. Okay, suzerain's ancient Near East word for king. That king and that king alone. And if the vassal went after any other king, then that would bring down the wrath of the suzerain. They were breaking the contract. The, the, the covenant document would be destroyed, sometimes even ground up, and, uh, and, and symbolizing this is a breaking of the covenant. So that also has implications for when Moses came down from the hill, the golden calf, and he saw them, and they had broken the very first commandment. What did he do? He shattered the covenant tablets. Why? Because he was angry? Well, he was angry, but he didn't pitch a fit. Israel had broken the covenant. They had broke, the covenant was broken. And we read about that way back in uh, Exodus chapter 32, I think. So just knowing these little background things gives us information on why Moses acts the way he does, why Israel acts the way he does, and why God speaks the way he does in Deuteronomy. Because treaties were supposed to be uh, perpetual. They would be, two copies would be made. One copy would go back to the suzerain's uh, uh, palace and put in the temple of his God. The other would be put in the temple of the gods of the people so that both gods were witnesses to this covenant. And if either side broke it, it would be in call, calling down the wrath of the gods on them for breaking their end of the bargain. But in Israel, we see it's not two separate gods. Israel's God is Israel's suzerain. So it's two tablets, but they're put together in the ark which is at the footstool, or is the footstool, of Israel's king, which is also in the heart, in the center of Israel's temple, which is the tabernacle. So again, it's not like there were five commandments on one and five commandments on the other, like you see in folk art. There was two copies of the covenant, two copies of the treaty. It was unmistakable, the ancient Near East context, but they were put together in, deposited in the temple of Israel's God, who was the witness to this covenant. So it's fascinating the background of just the type of writing it is and the reason that when you study ancient Near East history, you learn all of these things that then influence how you read the Bible, in particular Deuteronomy in this case. So it, we, we saw last week how um, Hittite treaties start with the, prologue, the, the, the preamble, rather, which introduces the parties of the treaty. And that's what we read last week, verses 1 through... Mm, probably around verses 1 through 6, 1 through 5. That was sort of the preamble. Then after the preamble, the second part of any treaty would be the historical prologue. And the historical prologue would be a longer part, and it would tell the history leading up to this covenant agreement. 
So it would fill in because this would, this would be read in perpetuity for generation after generation after generation. So later generations would need to know the setting of the covenant when they read it periodically, which they were supposed to do. And the book of Deuteronomy ends with the command to periodically bring this book of the law out and read it in the hearing of all the people, thus reaffirming the covenant. So what happens then is Moses, and we looked at the first little bit last week, but the Lord had said basically, verse 8, see, I've given you this land, go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to their descendants after them. And we talked about how that's found in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. You can't understand the conquest that's going to happen in the next three books without understanding Genesis 15, without seeing it rooted in Genesis 15. So again, it's like if you want to know what's going on in a movie, you don't fast forward to the end of the movie or even midway through. You watch from the beginning. And that's what believers and critics alike have to do when they get to the conquest narratives is they have to read them through the lens of Genesis because that's how they were given. So then, God has blessed Israel. He's already kept His promises that He made to Abraham that He would make His descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, which is a Hebrew idiom of saying a lot. I mean, more than you can count. And so now it says, verse 9, at that time, Moses is speaking, I said to you, you're too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. May the Lord God of your fathers increase you a thousand times and bless you as He has promised. So he's not complaining. He's just saying, God's kept His promise and this has outgrown me. You guys, this is... One person cannot rule or govern or lead all these people. Verse 12, But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? 13, Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes and I will set them over you. And so you answered me. What you propose to do is good. In other words, the people agreed. So I took the leading men or the heads of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders, as a military term, as commanders of thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and tens, and as tribal officials. Why use military term? Because as we saw in the book of Numbers, God was transforming a rabble of slaves into a well-organized army according to its tribes. And in doing that, you don't have one person leading an army. You have one person and a chain of command under that person. And so this is what God's doing throughout the book of Numbers. Again, Moses is recounting all of this. Verse 16, And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, whether the case is between brother Israelites or between one of them and an immigrant or an alien. The word is ger. It means a foreigner who's dwelling among them. Do not show partiality in judgment. Here, both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time, I told you everything you were to do. So again, Israel's becoming a nation. This document treaty is describing their becoming a nation. And part of that nation is they're going to be commanded by a chain of command because they are a military entity now. The whole purpose of them coming out of Egypt was so they could go into Canaan. And the purpose of them going into Canaan was to be the military judgment on the particular Canaanites who were dwelling there who had reached their fullest measure of iniquity. God's time clock had run out on these Canaanites that Israel is going to exterminate. But later, 
God will do the exact same thing to Israel and their time will run out when they continue to do the same things those Canaanites did when he brings the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians to drive them out of the land. So again, God doesn't show favoritism and he doesn't have a, he, he has a specific chosen people, but they are chosen for a task. And when they rebel and act like the other nations, God treats them like the other nations. So it's a very important concept to understand so, so that we don't buy into this concept of, of um, or this stereotype of God having ethnic favorites. Um, as we'll see in this section, uh, half of Israel that leaves Egypt and enters into Canaan is Gentile. And I'll see what I mean by that when we get there. <clears throat> so at the time, I said, you're too heavy a burden for me to carry along. He goes on, it's too much. Let me give judges. Um, they're going to judge fairly. They're not going to take bribes. They're not going to show favoritism. They're going to judge correctly. Then verse 19, then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went towards the hill country of the Amorites through all the vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you've reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord, your God is, the Lord our God is giving us. See or look, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. He's echoing again what he said in verse 8. What God said in verse 8, Moses repeats to the people now in this section. And here's that paradox that we have. I have given you the land. Go take possession of it. Grace works. You do not get one without the other. God's grace enables them to do it but they have to do it. Covenant obedience always flows from the grace of the covenant. And anytime later theologians try to dissect works from grace, you fall into one of two errors. You fall into Pelagianism and works righteousness, or you fall into the works don't matter, we're saved by grace, and nothing we do in any way affects that. Both of those are false. Scripture always holds the two in balance because they're the same side of the coin. You have grace first. Grace takes priority. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Not by works. That is 100% true. Israel was not brought out of Egypt by their works. And they were not brought into the land of Canaan by their works. All of it was grace of God. But that grace had to be appropriated by them walking in obedience. If you didn't put the blood on your doorpost in Egypt, guess what? Your firstborn died. If you didn't follow Moses when he led the people out of Egypt, guess what? You stayed in Egypt. So works had to flow out of grace, but grace was always prior. It always enabled the works that would come later. But you still had to decide, do I do the works? So again, in your theology, whatever that does for your theology, so be it. Just make sure that you always hold that tension, both and, both and, not either or. If you hear somebody emphasizing one at the expense of the other, you know that they've started to lose their theological or their biblical balance. So keep both in mind. So he goes on then to say, uh, verse 22, Then all of you came to me and said, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we're to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected twelve of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it's a good land that the Lord our God has given us. This is Numbers 13. He's recounting. Now, interestingly, here it says it's the people's idea. 
let, let us send spies. When you go back and read Numbers 13, or those of you that were here last year, you remember Numbers 13 said God was the one who said, go send spies. So the question for critics immediately is, haha, contradiction. And for believers, it's like, oh, what do we do with this? Was it God or was it the people? Both. People can suggest something. Moses can consider it. Pray about it. God says, yeah, go do that. Go send spies. Both are fine. You're getting two different perspectives on one event. And this is 40 years after. So in Moses' mind, those events are all in the same setting. And God's judgment, or excuse me, God's guidance comes in and through other people frequently in Scripture. Happened with Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, the one who said, put people under you. You can't listen to all these cases, the very thing in the previous chapter. That happened back in Exodus. So Moses is telescoping a lot of these things, and he's also giving a theological perspective. But in this instance, Exodus is, in this instance, he's giving a pastoral perspective. Because he is entreating, remember this is also a series of sermons in the form of a treaty covenant. Moses is talking to not the generation that did this, but their parents, I mean their children. And he's saying, he's speaking of them, you, you, you. Well, none of, the, none of them were alive then, or if they were, they were children. He's saying you corporately, and he's speaking to Israel as a corporate entity. And he's putting it on their behalf, saying, this is, remember, remember you wanted this. You wanted this. Whereas in Exodus, the theme is God's sovereignty and God bringing them and God directing and leading. So in that instance, it writes about God saying, yes, go send the spies into the land. So again, be careful when people point out contradictions in the Bible that they are actual contradictions, not just two different ways of describing an event. Because I don't know of many, if any, actual contradictions in the Bible, but I know a lot of cases like this where people read separately and don't ever consider the fact that they could be complimentary so regardless the purpose he's speaking to the people and he's reminding them of their past and their history with God and their role in all of this the land was good they sent spies this was a 40-day period these spies spent 40 days in the land and brought back fruit brought back produce brought back a sample of the land and the people saw and it was a good land I mean the grapes were the clusters of grapes were so big two guys had to carry it on a pole between them massive cluster of grapes all right, so that shows this is this land is good. And remember, they're dwelling in the desert, so even one grape would have been exciting. A massive cluster, oh, oh man. So verse twenty-six. Remember, I have given you the land. Go possess it. Send spies if you want to. They're going to bring back produce from the land to show you how good a land it is. So they have everything they need to believe and trust God, including the fact that all of this is happening beneath a giant pillar of cloud and pillar of smoke or pillar of fire rather, and that they had just watched the mightiest empire in the history of the world up until this time be brought down to its knees by this same God. All of that. So God is not asking them to take a step in the dark. He has given them ample proof and ample evidence of his presence with them. Verse 26, but you were unwilling to go up. And we read this in Numbers 14. You were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents. You said, the Lord hates us, so He's brought us out of Egypt to deliver us in the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Amorites is a generic term for Canaanites. People in this country. People in this area. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. The Septuagint says we even saw the giants there. 
Um, there's debate on who these Anakites are, whether they're descendants left over from the flood, the people that just, you know, the Nephilim's descendants. Kind of hard to think of because everybody except Noah was wiped out in the flood. So don't know how their descendants would have stuck around. Or what's more likely is Anakites, giants, um, these terms, Nephilim, these terms that are used are echoes of the pre-Diluvian, the pre-flood world that continued to remain down the centuries in the minds of the people. And it served the same purpose basically as an English equivalent of saying the boogeyman or the Hottentots or the, any other generic term for scary people, scary entities that you can think of that aren't quite defined but that are scary. Kind of like that's what the spies brought back is, yeah, we even saw Anakites there. We even saw monsters there. And it would have brought back echoes of these powerful ancient warlords or whoever they were. We don't know. But the point is the spies, 10 of the 12 spies came back and they saw the land. They had been in it for 40 days and they told the people, we can't do it. We can't take it. They're too strong. And the people believed them. And that's what turned those 40 days. God said, fine, you, your children, or you guys, excuse me, you guys are going to spend one day in the wilderness, one year for every day the spies were in the land. And when your generation has died out, your children will then go in and inherit the land. And so Moses, again, he hears that and he pleads, verse 29, but then I said to you, do not be terrified, do not be afraid. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. In other words, he's saying, remember guys, Remember the giant sea you just walked through? Remember? <clears throat> and in the desert, uh, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the, way with, uh, all the way you went until you reached this place. He uses the image of Israel, which dominated Exodus. The imagery at the beginning of Exodus was Israel was God's firstborn son. God repeated over and over, Israel, you are my firstborn son. Hosea in chapter 11 will say, Israel, out of Egypt I called my son. And then later, Matthew, when he's describing Jesus, he'll say, that's how that was fulfilled. Jesus, the literal son of God, doing and being what the original son of God, Israel, the people, could not do and be on their own. Massive amounts of biblical theology tied up in that concept of the son of God is the people Israel. And they failed. So then God Himself comes to earth. The Son of God becomes flesh and succeeds where the metaphorical Son of God failed. But that's way ahead. That's New Testament stuff. So, um, Moses, you know, do not be terrified. But, verse 32, in spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in cloud by day to search out the places for you to camp and show you the way you should go. Shepherd imagery, God is showing them the way, leading them in the desert, searching out. God is with them every step of the way, and Moses is trying to get them to see that. Uh, verse 34, when the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, he will see it. And I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Caleb, one of two faithful spies. God will get to Joshua in a minute. But Caleb, remember, what does Caleb's name mean? What does the Hebrew word Caleb mean? Dog. That's right. And what were dogs in Israel's image bank? Symbols of what? Gentiles. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. You trace his genealogy back in Chronicles. Caleb was not an Israelite. He was of the sons of Kenaz. He was a Kenazite. He was part of the Gentile mixed multitude that joined Israel when they came out of Egypt. 
one of two people who left Israel as an adult and entered into the promised land. Him and Joshua. He was a Gentile. From the beginning, God's people Israel have always consisted of believing Jews, believing Gentile. Even before, there's no such thing as Jews at this point. There's Israelites. Jews would come from later when they moved into Judea. But right now, you just have God's people, Israelites. And half of the faithful ones, 50%, were Gentile. That's echoes and hints and, and, and uh, foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the future that the prophets envision when the Gentiles will stream to Israel's God, will stream to Mount Zion, will stream to Torah, and want to know the God of Israel. But again, that's New Testament. We're not even there yet. So, <clears throat> because of you, then this is later. This, this, events of this happened in Numbers 20 that we're about to read, about, rather than Numbers 14. But again, Moses is telescoping everything because he's giving the historical prologue. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, you shall not enter it either. But your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones, you said, would be taken captive, meaning your children, who do not let your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Now here we have this imagery of the people. God saying, you have failed this generation. But my promise continues and can't be thwarted. So you can remove yourself from my promise, but my promise will still stand. And it's going to go to your children who do not yet know good from evil. That's an echo of the Genesis account of creation, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In this instance that in Eden they were innocent. There was innocence. And then they had to choose to rebel in order for sin and death and the consequences to enter, which they did. Well, Israel is recapitulating in, 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 in some ways the experience of all humanity, particularly in Eden. There's a reason that Eden imagery is that of a temple we've looked at when we were in Genesis. There's reason that later you'll hear echoes of, of Israel breaking the covenant as they did at Adam. Israel is kind of reliving the story of Adam in micro because they are going to be the new Adam, the new firstborn son. Adam was the real firstborn son originally. They're going to be the new Adam. And they're going to get it right? No. They're going to rebel just like Adam did. And so eventually God himself is going to have to come set right what they could not do. But again, it's saying your children, the ones who are, do not yet know the good from the evil. This is where some theologians have come up with the concept of an age of accountability. And there's some traditions that even put a number on it. Twelve years old. Um, you don't find that anywhere in Scripture, that number necessarily, but you do find the concept in Scripture that there is a time when you are morally innocent. You, you do not know the good from the evil. That phrase, not knowing the good from the evil, do a word search, you'll see it in a number of places in Scripture, and it always talks about children, infants, um, people who haven't yet learned the distinction between good and evil to a point where they experientially know it and are held guilty of it. So let that shape your theology, but no, there's no particular age of accountability that Scripture gives in terms of years, because some 12-year-olds develop faster mentally than others. But there is the idea that children and small and the, those that can't discern good from evil, that there is a period, there's some kind of grace. This, is pastor, this, this becomes important for pastors and for leaders when you confront somebody who their child dies you know, I had a friend whose their, their child died of SIDS last year, and it was just the worst thing a parent can imagine. Your child, you put them to bed, you go in to check on them, they're dead. 
no cause, no nothing. The comfort that you can offer in that moment is your child is with the Lord. Your child does not get sent to hell because your child did not commit any sins. And some theologians would say, no, they inherited the sin of Adam. Okay, if you can prove that from Scripture, we can talk. But as of right now, I don't understand or I don't see that, but that's a discussion for another time. The point is that there is this concept of someone not knowing the good from the evil and God giving the grace to that group. But the ones who are punished are the ones who do know the good from the evil and choose the evil. And that's what we see in this section. So God says, go back. I'm not going to fight for you. And then the last point, then you replied, this is the people after God's announced the judgment, we've sinned against the Lord. We'll go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. Rebellion led to presumption. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Horma, which means destruction. You came back and wept before the Lord, but He paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days all the time you spent there. Many days is an understatement. It was 38 years. 38 years. What should have been an 11-day journey. 38 years because of their disobedience and their rebellion. We're out of time, but we're going to jump into chapter 2 next week because it's not done. They still had to figure out, okay, how did we get from being beaten down and sentenced to 38 years in the wilderness to where we are now, which is on the plains of Moab on the east side looking into the promised land. They came up from the south, they got beat back down, and eventually there was this long and fortuitous route that brought them up to where they are now, the plains of Moab which if you want to see with your own eyes, you can come with us because we're going to go there. But we're out of time. You guys have a great week. If you come for the first time, thanks for coming. There's seconds. You can grab some. Uh, we're not running you out of here, but I have to go. So you all have a great week. We'll see you next week.